Revelation chapter 19, verse 1 through 3, verse 6 through 9. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just, for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted for her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Word of the Lord. Sorry, we're just going to move a few things out of the way here. Um, but here's the question I want to ask you as we begin this morning. Do you ever think of your life as a story? I think we all do. Um, thinking of our life in terms of a story is just, it's an instinctive thing that we human beings do in order to help us make sense of our life. Um, and especially to give us hope, you know, the, the, this hope that, that the story is actually going somewhere good. And we all long for that. So, for instance, Andrew Del Banco is a professor of American studies at Columbia University in New York City. Uh, some years ago, he wrote a fascinating book called The Real American Dream. It's, a, a, it's, it's like a history of the various things that our culture has hoped in over the years. And at the very beginning of the book, he says this. He says, the premise of this book is that human beings need to organize the sensations amid which we pass our days, things like pain, desire, pleasure, and fear. He says, we need to organize those things into a story. And when that story leads somewhere and thereby helps us navigate through life, it gives us hope. He says that we must imagine some end to our life that transcends our own tiny allotment of days and hours if we are to keep at bay the dim, back-of-the-mind suspicion that one may be adrift in an absurd world, the lurking suspicion that all our getting and spending amounts to nothing more than fidgeting while we wait for death. We make sense of our lives by means of a story. And especially, we want to imagine that the story is headed somewhere good. We long for that. We need that. Now, if there is no God and this world is all there is, then we're fools to hope for that. But at the same time, we can't stop hoping for that. Now, maybe it's just, you know, an evolutionary code that helps us survive. But what if the deepest longings of our heart 
correspond to something that actually exists. In other words, what if our deepest longings for things like love and joy and peace and happiness and fulfillment and flourishing that, that go beyond the walls of this world, what if we long for those things because we were actually created for those things? The whole Bible and, and really the whole book of Revelation is saying you are not a fool to hope for that. You were made for that. In fact, the deepest longings of every human heart find their ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ. So if you're exploring faith, uh, if you're exploring what it means to follow Jesus, maybe you're thinking to yourself, wow, could this really be true? Or if you've been following Jesus for years, maybe even for decades, you know, life is hard. Life has a way of beating you down, especially um, what's been going on in our world these past few months. It makes it really easy for us to feel like ignorant plebeian fools forever believing that the story could possibly be headed somewhere good. And yet the Bible promises us that it is, which means that this passage is really for all of us because this passage shows us the ending towards which all the storylines in history are headed. What is that? It's called the marriage supper of the Lamb. What in the world is that? And what does it mean for us? Let's find out by seeing three things this morning in this passage. We're going to see the intimacy we're made for, the imitations we settle for, and lastly, the joy that we're headed for, okay? The intimacy we're made for, the imitations we settle for, and the joy we're headed for, all right? First, the intimacy we're made for. Uh, you know, one of the amazing things about the Bible is that it gives us all these different images for understanding our relationship with God. So um, one of the most common images is of God as a shepherd, and we are his flock. The image of a shepherd signifies things like guidance, protection, provision. Another really common image, and it's one that Jesus used almost exclusively, is of God as a father, and we are his children. The image of, of a father is an image of love, but also of approval and access. You know, little kids have access to their parents in a way that those adults would never give to anyone else. But another one of the most common images the Bible uses to describe our relationship with God, and you see this over and over in the Bible, and you see it here in this passage, is that over and over in Scripture, God calls himself the bridegroom, and we are his bride. God is the bridegroom, we are the bride. That you see that all through the book of Isaiah, all through the book of Hosea. You see it in Jeremiah chapters 2 through 4 or Ezekiel chapter 16. This is all over the Bible. Here in Revelation chapter 19, we are arriving at the climax of the whole book of Revelation. This, this is the ending towards which the Bible says all of the storylines in history are headed. And what is it? tells us, let us rejoice and exult and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Of all the images for our relationship with God, this is the one that the Bible uses for the climax of the whole story of a marriage, a bridegroom and his bride. Now, what does this mean? Because obviously, if you think about marriage, you know, marriage means love, but it's a different kind of love than a parent and a child, isn't it? Marital love means a lot of different things, but let me mention two of the biggest. First, marriage means intimacy. If you 
Go back in the Bible and look at the very first marriage in the Bible. In Genesis chapter 2, it tells us the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, this is a stunning image because not only does it mean they were physically naked, this means emotionally naked. It means psychologically and spiritually naked. This is a level of disclosure and vulnerability that, um, that you don't give to anyone else, or at least you shouldn't give it to anyone else, and I'll come back to that. But this means that you are, you are being the real you in front of someone else. You're, you're not hiding. You are, you're being unveiled before someone else. The, the level of vulnerability that's involved here is terrifying because it means you're letting down all of your guards. You're perfectly, totally naked in front of someone, and yet also totally safe. That's intimacy. So first, marriage means intimacy, but secondly, marriage means devotion. In other words, there can't be anybody else. <laughs> you know, marriage means that th that relationship has to be the number one priority in your life. When God calls himself the bridegroom, he's saying that in order for us to have this kind of intimacy, your relationship with me has to be the number one relational priority in your life. Nothing else can come before me in your life. So marriage means intimacy. Marriage means devotion. Friends, these are two of the deepest needs of every human heart. We all long for these things. But here's the thing. We don't just long for these things at a human level. We, our longings for intimacy and devotion uh, go beyond anything we've ever experienced in this world. So for instance, Tara Isabella Burton is a, a writer. She's a journalist. She has a, a doctorate in theology from Oxford University, which means she's also a public theologian. Uh, she just came out with a book like a month ago. It's called Strange Rights, New Religions for a Godless World. In, in our world today, you know, many people, especially young people, are abandoning traditional institutional religious structures. But she says that doesn't mean that people are abandoning faith or um, spirituality or transcendence, a desire for those things. In fact, the whole book is all about um, the explosion of alternative religions and spiritualities that we've been seeing in our culture over the past several years. So um, in the very beginning of the book, she says, you know, it, it's pretty common for most of us, at least at some point in our life, to wonder if this physical world is all there is. Is this all there is? You know, because if it is, then the world we live in is fundamentally meaningless. And yet we instinctively all yearn for something more than this world. And so here's how she puts it in the beginning of the book. She says, this book is about the Americans who don't know if this is all there is or what all means or there or even is. She says, this is about our quest for knowing, for belonging, and for meaning, the pilgrimage none of us can get out of. The pilgrimage none of us can get out of. In other words, we, we all have this innate sense that, that we are on a quest, on a pilgrimage. We yearn for things like knowing, believing, and meaning. We yearn for things like intimacy and devotion beyond the walls of this world. But the funny thing about this pilgrimage is that, that none of us chose it. Whenever we think about this, we realize this is not something we chose. It feels like something that chose us. That means to be human is to experience a longing for intimacy and devotion that goes beyond anything we've ever experienced in this world. Friends, the God of the Bible 
is the only God that offers you, that invites you into this kind of radical, vulnerable, personal, soul-bearing intimacy. And here's the really amazing thing about this. Jesus Christ had the audacity to say, it's me. I am the bridegroom. You can read about this in Matthew chapter 9 or Mark chapter 2. Jesus says, I am the bridegroom. Any Jewish person in his audience at that time, they would have known immediately what he was talking about because as we've seen over and over in the Old Testament, God calls himself the bridegroom of his people. Jesus says, that's me. I am the bridegroom. I am not just a moral teacher or a spiritual guru or a political revolutionary. I am the creator of the earth. I am your creator. I made you for intimacy with me, for full devotion with me. And unless your relationship with me is the number one priority in my life, then you will never experience the very thing that you were made for because it's me. Friends, we were made for intimacy with God. That's the first thing we see, the intimacy we're made for. But secondly, we see here the imitations we settle for. You know, we've just seen one of the main storylines in the Bible is that God is the bridegroom, but there's a tragic element in this story. Throughout the Bible, you see God's people constantly turning away from God and and giving their ultimate love and devotion to other gods, other lords, other saviors. You know what that means? If God says, I'm the bridegroom and and my people, they're, they're the bride, then for us to give our ultimate love and devotion to to something other than God, that's not just turning to other gods, is it? That's turning to other lovers. It's not just apostasy, it's adultery. And actually, God calls it that over and over throughout the Bible. And when we understand that, then we're beginning to understand um, a little bit more about this very troublesome concept in our culture, the concept of sin. You know, just as the Bible has different images to describe our relationship with God, the Bible also has different images to describe what sin is. Lots of different images. So it'll say that sin is uh, like sickness and we need healing, or that sin is like dirtiness and we need washing, or that sin is like slavery and we need to be set free. One of the other most common images in the Bible for sin is the image of adultery or prostitution. What is adultery or prostitution? It's imitation intimacy. It's imitation intimacy. And that's exactly what we see in this passage. Um, When it says that God has judged the great prostitute, that's a reference to Babylon, um, which we learned back in chapter 18. It says, fallen. Fallen is Babylon the great, that God has judged the great prostitute of Babylon. Now, Babylon was a real city in the ancient world, But throughout the Bible, Babylon represents human society, human power, human progress, human striving, but without God. Which means that it's always going to be a place of oppression, violence, of corruption, of war and poverty or racism. Why? Because whenever we give the ultimate intimacy and devotion, the ultimate love and devotion of our hearts to something other than God, the result is always going to be distortions, not just in our lives, but in the world around us. It's kind of like putting maple syrup in your gas tank. It'll ruin your car because your car wasn't designed for that. Now, let's be really clear about something. This world is filled with really good things that are worthy of our love, 
things like career or family or romance or political causes or social causes. Those things are good. Those things are worthy of our love, but there's only room in your heart for one ultimate love. And if you give that one ultimate love to anything other than God, God says that's like adultery. So for instance, the great preacher and writer, Tim Keller from New York City, he gives really the perfect example of this. He says, imagine a woman whose husband spends all of his time with another woman. Now they're not sleeping together, but they spend all their time together. They stay up to all hours of the night sharing the deepest secrets of their hearts. They go on trips all over the world for weeks at a time. Finally, when the wife confronts her husband, the husband says, hey, what's the big deal here? Legally, I'm your husband. I pay the mortgage. You have the title to the house. You have the title to my name. You have the title to our money. What's the big deal here? The wife is going to say, but I don't have the title to your heart. What kind of a marriage is it? If, if I have the title to all of those other things, but some other woman has the title to your deepest affections. Tim Keller goes on to say, you know, we do that in the church just as easily as we could do that in a relationship with a human being. In other words, we could say to God, God, look, you know, I go to church. I tithe my money. I obey the Ten Commandments. I do my duty. You have the title to everything in my life. But God could say, but do I have the title to your heart? Or is it your career or your family or romance or some cause? Is that what really has the title to the deepest affections of your heart? And remember what we just said. Those are good things. Those, those things are good and right. It's, it's, they're worthy of our love. But whenever we give the ultimate love and devotion of our hearts to something other than God, Tim Keller says, we're not just breaking God's rules. We're breaking God's heart. It's adultery. Friends, um, Again, those are good and wonderful things, but as good and as wonderful as all those things are, none of them are God, and they can't take God's place in your life. So, you know, if you want to know what that might be in your life, what do you fantasize about? What do you spend all your free time dreaming about? Or where does your money flow most easily? Or what has captured your imagination, the deep affections of your mind and your life? Friends, as good and wonderful as it is to, to love um, things like family or career or romance or a cause. You realize, of course, that every single one of those things has a limited shelf life. They're all going to end someday. And if you build your life, if you center your heart on something that one day will end, then when it does end, what happens to you? This passage actually tells us. In verse 3, it says that the smoke from her, that's Babylon, says the smoke from Babylon goes up forever and ever. Smoke is an image of futility and desolation and ruin. When we give the deepest love and devotion of our heart to something other than God, the result in our life is smoke. It's desolation and ruin. And so, by the way, you look around at the world around us and you can see the results of our spiritual adultery all over the world, right? I mean, modern Western society is built, foundationally it is built on maximum freedom, maximum liberty. And that, that goes across the, the political board from, from uh, left to right. Maximum freedom and, and um, liberty. Our culture says never bind yourself, never restrict yourself. Everyone should have maximum freedom to be your authentic self. And look, freedom is a good thing, just like all these other things. Freedom is a good thing. But when freedom becomes an idol, it becomes a prison, and it enslaves us. When our 
culture puts this inordinate emphasis on freedom um, in our lives. The result is, and you see it in our world, the meaninglessness, the loneliness, the isolation, and that's all before COVID hit. Why do we see rising rates of addiction or anxiety or depression or suicide? It's because when freedom becomes an idol, it actually turns into a prison. It enslaves us. The only way we can really experience the intimacy and the devotion that we're meant for, and you know this, if you're married, you have to limit your freedom somehow. You can't have the intimacy and the devotion. You can't have the meaning and the purpose that you are meant for if you don't limit your freedom somehow. Friends, we were created for intimacy with God. We were created for devotion to God. And yet when we give that ultimate intimacy and devotion to anything other than God, the result in our lives is always ruin and despair and desolation. It's smoke. And that leads to our last point. We've seen the intimacy we were made for. We've seen the imitations we settle for. But lastly, we see the joy we're headed for. Because if if we think about it, what we just said, that if we give our ultimate love and devotion to something other than God, the result is always desolation and ruin in our lives. But what happens if we actually do give ourselves to God? What happens if we do that? You know, I want us to notice something in this passage. The more I thought about this this week and meditated on this, the more it blew me away. I can't even wrap my mind around this, and yet I can't escape the reality of what this passage is showing us. You know, we were created to give our ultimate intimacy and devotion to God. We were created to, um, to open ourselves to him, to, to unveil before him, to be um, totally naked, but also totally safe and perfect intimacy with God. It would be amazing enough if this God was inviting us to do that with him. But the really mind-blowing thing about the gospel is that God, this God, is actually saying that he wants to do that with us. Because whose marriage is it here? Twice in this passage, you notice it says, the marriage of the Lamb has come in verse 7 or in verse 9. Blessed are those who invited to the marriage of the supper of the Lamb. This is not just our marriage. This is Jesus's marriage. And it doesn't say the marriage of Jesus. It says the marriage of the Lamb. What does that mean? It means that that everything Jesus invites us to, the intimacy, the nakedness, the, um, the unveiling, the devotion, all of that, it means that we've actually withheld those things from Jesus. It means that, that, um, that we've withheld those things from, from the one who's supposed to be the source of those things. Now, think about this. If you've ever been hurt, if you've ever been betrayed by somebody, you know how painful that is. We have withheld our ultimate love and devotion from the God who created us. How in the world are we supposed to, to, to give him that love and devotion? The only way is to see that Jesus has already given us the same love and devotion. That's exactly what this passage is showing us. Because think about it. If you've ever been betrayed by somebody you loved and somebody you thought loved you, you know how painful that is. You know how your heart cries out for justice and even for for punishment. Why would we think that God's heart feels any less pain at our betrayal? If we experience pain when, when we're betrayed by someone we love, how much more does God? But here's the thing. You know, you and I, This is not just like a a one-time thing that we do with God. It's not just like a fling. 
this is harsh language, but here's the reality. You and I, it's like we're serial adulterers. We're serial prostitutes. It's not just a fling. We do this over and over and over with God. Because the deepest lifelong inclination of our heart is to give the deepest intimacy and devotion of our heart to other lovers other than God. And whenever we do that, we're not just breaking God's rules. We're breaking God's heart. How in the world are we supposed to give ourselves to God like that? It's by seeing that God has already given himself to us like that. And the ultimate place we see that is on the cross. Because think about if you've ever betrayed like that, you know, over and over again, not just once, but over and over, you would be crazy to go back to somebody who hurt you like that, wouldn't you? I mean, our hearts just don't work like that, but God's does. God's does, and the place we see that most clearly is on the cross of Jesus Christ, because on the cross, Jesus Christ betrothed himself in intimacy to you. Jesus Christ was stripped naked on the cross. He opened himself. He was totally, utterly exposed, unveiled. He opened himself to you fully to invite you in all the way in to the heart of God. And, and not just that, but on the cross, Jesus Christ also pledged himself to you in total devotion. You know, as I said, our culture puts such an emphasis on maximum freedom, maximum liberty. It says never restrict yourself, never bind yourself. And yet on the cross, Jesus Christ was bound to you with nails in his hands and his feet. They were like the wedding ring on his finger that, by which he binds himself to you and says, I give myself to you. Friends, if Jesus has done that for you, you know what the result in, in your life is? It means that we're headed for joy. So you see that in this passage. It says, let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come. That means that if you put yourself into the arms of Jesus, then everything you've ever been hoping for, everything you've ever been longing for, all, all the, the deepest desires of your heart, all the happy endings you're, you've ever been dreaming of, all of that belongs to you in Jesus. And what does that mean for you and me, practically speaking? It means that, that while this is still in the future, it's guaranteed. And that means that, that we wait, but we wait with hope. It means we sip the coming joy while we wait for our consummation with Jesus. But let me be even more specific than that, because so many people in our congregation, so many of you, uh, are single, but we also have a lot of married people. So what does that mean for us? But first, the, here's what this means. Singleness is not a less than life. It's, it means that singleness is not a less than life. In other words, singleness is a fully dignified, fully joyful, fully fruitful life. And I understand a lot of you, maybe, maybe you are waiting one day you would hope to be married, or maybe you were married and you're not now, but you're single for whatever reason in your life right now. And I, I, listen, I get it. That is, can often be a painful place to be. But if you understand, look, Jesus, this passage is showing us that Jesus is waiting too. Because the consummation of his marriage is still yet to come. That means that as hard as waiting for us is in this life, Jesus is waiting too. And so we wait, but we do not wait alone. Our Savior is waiting for us. He's waiting for the consummation of his marriage to you and me. He's still waiting for it. That means that if you're single, singleness is not a less than life, that you can live a fully fruitful, fully dignified, fully joyful life. It's not a less than state of being. But that also means that marriage is not the end-all, be-all of life. 
that marriage is not the end-all be-all of life, especially in our culture. We have a, a tendency to put a tremendous amount of emphasis on marriage as the end-all be-all. And especially, you know this is true, that in our culture we say, if you are not being sexually fulfilled, then you're living a less than life. That sexual fulfillment is, 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 if you're not having that in your life, then you're living a diminished life. That's not true. Jesus shows us, and he said marriage is not, physical earthly marriage is not the end-all be-all of life because our true marriage is with Jesus Christ. He is the intimacy. He is the devotion that we were created for. In fact, if you put those kinds of expectations on a marriage, not only will you crush the marriage, but your marriage's failure to live up to your expectations will crush you. Friends, we were created for this with God. And for those of you who are married, you know that, that as good as a marriage can possibly be, that even the very best marriage cannot satisfy the deepest longings of our heart. Only God can do that. It's God. It's Jesus. He's the one we long for. He gave himself to us on the cross so that we could give ourselves to him totally and perfectly and fully. Friends, the, the marriage supper of the Lamb, the invitations have been sent. Have you said yes? Have you said yes to Jesus? We were created for him, for intimacy with him. And the more we find that intimacy and that devotion in him, the more we live fully rich lives in this world while we wait for him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the promise, and not just the promise, but, but the, the presence of Jesus through your Holy Spirit in our lives, that even while we wait in this world for the full consummation of everything you created us for, the intimacy and the devotion. We praise you that even now you have given us your presence in our hearts and our lives to, to, that we might sip the coming joy that is waiting for us. Father, we pray this morning that you would help us in this world to be faithful to you. Lord, as often as we turn to other lovers, we pray that you would help us to continue turning back to you over and over again, as often as we do, because we see that, Lord Jesus, you have given yourself to us on the cross. And we pray that you would help us always to be faithful to you, to rejoice in you, and to, um, and to be vessels of the same love and joy to the um, world around us. For we pray all these things in Jesus' name.